0: I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. We live in a world where so many children and adolescents are being given psychiatric diagnoses. But how do we know that the diagnoses are correct? And more so, how do we know that the treatments are correct, especially since so many of those treatments involve medications? To help us look at these issues is Elias Sarkis, a child psychiatrist from the middle of Florida. Dr. Sarkis, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Sarkis. I am looking at some of the material that has come out recently about best practices for medicating children. And one of the things that strikes me is that there are actually sections about how to treat kids under the age of six. It seems so young. Please give me your attitudes and, and do people under six years old need medications?
1: Well, it you know, surprisingly, yes. I have actually medicated a few children under six. But one case that I remember very clearly was a uh, two-and-a-half-year-old who, who would manage to escape his house in the middle of the night about uh, 3 a.m. on a very regular basis. And, uh, of course, the first thing we did was environmental things. We you know, had the parents move the locks up, but this kid was very precocious and would actually get a chair and Safer than him wandering around the neighborhood.
0: You know, it seems so incredulous that someone that young could be so facing so many problems that they actually would need this level of intervention.
1: It is, but it also turned out later that there were more problems in the family than I than they would uh, have told me. So even though I had been interviewing the family and working with the family, sometimes you don't get a straight answer.
0: So let's talk a little bit about this, because this is a very key point. When does someone begin to feel that there has to be an intervention? What level of, of problem? And I don't know if we should just limit it to kids under six or to all kids. And, and we should note that, by and large, it's a it's, um, committee determination, but we're talking about people under the age of 18, although an 18-year-old is probably much more like an adult.
1: Yes, an 18-year-old is much more like an adult. But, you know, there really is a big difference, kids under 6 and kids
0: Environment being the parents in particular,
1: it being the parents in particular. But uh, you know, sometimes they, you know, they're in foster care. Sometimes the uh, grandparents are really taking care of them, and the grandparents maybe not have all the tools they need, all the energy they need to take care of a child under six. So, in general, most problems with a child under 6 should be, we should be able to take care of it by uh, working with the family, doing some family therapy, and uh, and re- in, actually in uh, some rare cases working directly with the child in play therapy. That should take care of, you know, I, I would hate to get out of statistics, but I, I would it should take care of more than 90% of the problems with kids
0: under 6. It doesn't take care of 100% of them. Okay. So are we looking, though, you know, the... How shall I say this? Should we, people under six, we tend to think that they have attention deficit disorders, but then you hear about impulsive disorders, self injurious disorders. The under six group—is there more of a cluster of a type of disorder than not? Well, the,
1: the, the ones I've seen that have had to medicate are uh, things like trichotillomania, where the you know you know the child is pulling his hair. And actually, there was a you know a three year old that had a quarter sized bald spot in her head. And again we you know we had been working with play therapy and family therapy before, you know for several months but as the bald size spot got bigger then you know we started to medicate the the child the way i look at it is i look at how much is this kid suffering and that makes my decision uh, that really impacts heavily on my decision as to whether I should medicate a child, especially one under six. Uh, really looking, trying to look at it from the kid's perspective. How much is a kid suffering? You know, if, uh, you know, a four-year-old is a little bit rambunctious and hyperactive, I don't think that's a big deal. I don't think that needs to be medicated. Uh, now, if a four-year-old is, you know, or a five-year-old is so uh, rambunctious and, and, and hyperactive that he's gotten kicked out of, you know, multiple daycare settings... And, the you know, the parent is starting to resent him. Perhaps it's a single parent. She's in, you know, she's about to lose her job because, you know, she's uh, she has to be called to the daycare to take him home, et cetera. And he's getting a lot of negative reinforcers from everybody, from obviously from the daycare, from the peers that he is in with the daycare, from the parent who is starting to really resent him. Uh, then, you know, we really need to consider medications at that point. So it's a question of how much impact, you know, this is having on
0: the child. When then should a parent who is starting to suspect some sort of problems or the school is reporting problems, when do you go to the pediatrician, when do you go to a counselor, and when should you go to a psychiatrist? Well,
1: I I think a pediatrician is a good place to start in, in most cases. I also think that for Uh, a majority of of problems, they really should start with counseling. A lot of times, some behavioral interventions, you know, some understanding of what the child is going through. You know, bullying, for example, has more recently come out to be a very severe problem in our school system, and a lot of times the kids don't report that to their parents. So you know, some family sessions with a reasonable counselor might elicit some of that
0: information that the parents don't have, which is more of a reactive thing. When you look at the databases, or excuse me, the material on the internet, you see such things as attention deficit disorder in children under six. You see major depression in children under six. And I know we're focusing more on the young group than the older groups, but is there really a bipolar disorder in a kid under six? Is that even realistic? Well.
1: You know, before we didn't think it existed in adolescence. Now we know it exists in adolescence. And now, and I was very resistant to the idea that it existed in kids under twelve. And I've seen it for myself in my office. I had an eight-year-old who had all all sorts of signs of mania. You know, flight of ideas, racing thoughts. In, you know, not needing to sleep, and you know, hypersexuality, which was which really did go away when I, you know, we medicated her. So. I'm four, I haven't seen a, a bipolar child their six, but um, I, I don't know.
0: Well, I don't know either, but I'm just you know looking at the, what's out there and on the internet. Right. But Dr. Shuss, one
1: one, one thing I need sure. to mention is that you know I've been in practice for about 20 years, and the kids I'm seeing today, you know, are a lot sicker than they were 20 years ago. I'm not sure what what causes that. I mean, I do know that 20 years ago. I had a hospital where I could put the sickest kids in there for, you know, two or three months and, you know, they would get better and they would be, you know, I wouldn't have to try to treat them on an outpatient basis. The structure of the hospital really helped and I had a whole team working with them from a psychologist to family therapist to special ed teachers, etc. Um, so I, I don't know if that's one of the reasons I'm seeing sicker kids, but I really am seeing sicker
0: kids. Today. Younger younger kids and sicker kids. Younger and sicker. Wow. Yes. You know, the other thing also in driving over here this morning there was an advertisement on the radio and it said that one out of 150 kids is autistic. And that seems like such a huge number of people.
1: Well, it it is and it's really scary. Now, uh, there's a couple of reasons for that diagnosis. Now we, we've gone from 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 150. That's big. Uh, now, part of that is the fact that we have sort of enlarged the criteria. You know, so we, we now talk about autism spectrum disorder and we now include people, for example, that twenty years ago I would not have diagnosed in, as autistic. I would have uh, diagnosed them perhaps as ADHD plus a uh, language impairment or something like that, and now they're they're coming in with the asperger or you know some other delays in coordination motor motor and coordination, et cetera, and now they're coming in with an Asperger's uh, syndrome diagnosis already before I even see them, so some of that is because. Uh, there's greater awareness, and people are going under that umbrella that 20 years ago would not be classified in that umbrella. However, the reality is that there's still a very dramatic increase in uh, autism, in true autism, and, and in autism spectrum disorders, so that there is a dramatic increase in uh, cases that I would have diagnosed 20 years ago. And uh, the the reality is I now see autism was children with autism in, in, in my neighbors, in, uh, in family members, extended family members, where 20 years ago, I mean,
0: you know, it was, it was really unheard of. One of the ongoing arguments, and it goes both ways, I've read it both ways, is whether or not the mercury in the vaccines that we give kids was the cause of the autism. Well,
1: I think we really need to look at what's changed over the last 20 years. And one of the things that's changed is that we don't have mercury in vaccines anymore. So I don't think that's it. I think we're wasting our time with the vaccine theory. There's a lot of scientific uh, evidence that the vaccines do not cause autism. And we really need to look perhaps at, at more general things what's changed we now do more ultrasounds when the you know when the woman is pregnant we now everybody has cell phones and you know those those things are ubiquitous so i we need to look at what you know microwaves are everywhere i think we need to look at more than just the vaccines we've looked at vaccines and there's a very definitive no there's no relationship between vaccines and the rise in the rise in autism rates we've been vaccinating kids all those years so 20 years ago we were vaccinating kids and we weren't didn't see all this autism
0: so this is an ongoing study obviously but but let's let's talk about something that and this is why i I enjoy talking to you let's be very specific because you have highlighted and i think very rightly so the notion of counseling and and getting to look at the um, parental and other environmental issues but in setting this up you gave me a very simple little mantra which i think was great individualize, monitor follow-up Target symptoms. Monitor, monitor, monitor. Is that what good therapy is all about? Absolutely. I think, I think monitoring is, is,
1: is vital. It, I've heard, I've seen so many uh, scary things where, you know, for example, I had a, you know, because of insurance issues, I had a one time evaluation of this of a child. He came in, I prescribed some uh, Adderall, let's uh, say I think it was 10 milligrams, and I didn't get to see this child for another year. During that entire year, The child hadn't gained a single pound and had, uh, you know, the pediatrician was renewing the prescription and the mother was reporting that the medication was not effective. So we had the side effects of the medication. We didn't have any benefit and all this because the child wasn't being monitored properly. So I had made the recommendation of Adderall, but, you know, clearly that was the wrong, you know, that wasn't the right medicine for the kid. Kid needed to be on a different medication, but, the only way to know that is to monitor the response.
0: So, Ken, and I don't want to get into a political thing right now because that would take us away from the clinical treatment, but it seems that there is an issue with access to proper clinical treatment for kids.
1: Oh, there's a huge issue in access. Uh, the, the First of all, there are very, very few child psychiatrists, and we're producing fewer of them as time goes on, especially in relationship to the need and especially in relationship to the fact that kids are sick. We don't have many hospitals. It's very difficult to get a kid into a hospital, unless they're acutely suicidal. So a lot of children that really would benefit from, you know, a two-month stay in a hospital where we would be able to find out exactly what's going on with them, Outside of the family home and perhaps, you know, really, you know, I hate to use the word tune them up, but (laughs) improve, improve their functionality to the best that we could and then, you know, see what happens and then being able to follow them in an outpatient setting.
0: We do occasionally hear horror stories, and I don't want to overemphasize them, but I think the horror stories are in large, uh, from from a very large perspective, the result of not proper monitoring and not having adequate access to what the kids need.
1: Absolutely. We have to remember that, you know, for example, whether it's ADHD or a major depression, we, we at least have 20 candidate genes. Uh, for each one of these disorders and so any one of anybody with any these disorders that they could have two or three of those genes they could have 10 of those genes you know and those genes are different well what does that mean that means their brain biochemistry is different what does that mean that means that their uh, response to medications is going to be different so you can Clinically, you can have two individuals that look absolutely identical. For example, like that kid I was mentioning, you know, where maybe 7 out of 10 kids would, would have done well on Adderall, and this kid didn't, didn't do well at all. So you have to monitor, you have to monitor.
0: And that obviously is a big hole in our system.
1: It is a big hole in our system. We don't have enough child psychiatrists. We don't have enough, and, and mind you, there could be other ways. We could politically, we could create different systems for monitoring. A lot of, you know, we could perhaps have you know home health nurses monitoring these kids, and you know, bringing the ones back to the child psychiatrists that aren't doing well, and and simply you know renewing prescriptions as the kids. Are in fact doing well and progressing. I don't think it takes a child psychiatrist to monitor every kid, but there are certain medications, for example, that need um, blood work. There are certain medications that where We you know, we should have a baseline EKG, for example, for tricyclics or for alpha agonists like clonidine and 10X. We should have a baseline EKG.
0: As I listen to you in your entirety, the the message is that there are wonderful treatments out there, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, not yet, but very good, wonderful treatments that can help a lot. But the implementation of those treatments, the implementation is where the problem lies. Because the implementation has to be individualized, you can't, you know, just because a kid has
1: ADD, you can't just give him one one medication and and be sure he's going to do well. You really need to make sure that that's the right medicine for the kid. So you have to monitor him. So and uh, you also have to monitor the, uh, you know, uh, the, the the parents and their, you know, how are they, how are they using that medication? Are they using it to punish the kid? You know, I, I've seen some very strange things. You know oh you've been bad so you're going to get this medication well you know that doesn't that's not very therapeutic
0: no and then of course the stigma that rolls off of that is enormous absolutely
1: and the resentment is enormous and once a kid becomes a little bit more autonomous, he's not gonna take the medication, and that's, that's a big problem. And then there's, there is the issue of side effects, and, and some kids have them and some kids don't. So again, one needs to be monitoring. Another issue which, which also happens is that sometimes our expectations are a little bit too high. We want medications to take care of everything, and that's not gonna happen. Medications should improve some symptoms, eliminate some symptoms, but there is still gonna be variability. If there's an increase in environmental stressors, you know, the kid's symptoms are going to go back up. Uh, kids, you know, a lot of times, you know, parents tell me, well, if we give them medication, then we're not going to do tutoring. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not the way it works. Uh, you know, tutoring is going to be much more effective if the kid is able to pay attention, you know, for, you know, half an hour instead of five minutes of the tutoring session. So you know, it's not an either or. It's it's both. You do need the therapy and the medication. Uh, if you're using medications, you also need the, the therapy, the individualized educational plan, the tutoring, the, the uh, OT, occupational therapy, the language therapy, whatever else the child needs. The child still needs those things.
0: Which brings us to a very interesting point, and I'm going to modify, which brings us to an interesting point. When you talked about individualizing, monitoring, follow up, look for target symptoms, and then monitor, 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 I'm going to say for those target systems, symptoms, you have to look at target symptoms in the patient and in the family.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I've named my practice family psychiatry for a really good reason. I think it sends up a subconscious message to, you know, people who, you know, want to bring in their kids to fix them that, you
0: know, no, this is a family issue. Dr. Elias Sarkis is a child psychiatrist in the central part of Florida. He's treated children and families for many years, and he's given us, I think, some very practical insights into what is in the process of bringing a child who has a problem to a psychiatrist and get appropriate treatment. Dr. Sarkis, thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Strauss. I appreciate the fact that you're doing this. You're more than welcome, sir. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye.